You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ascp.com/podcasts. ASCP: Empowering Pharmacists, Transforming Aging. Welcome to the Senior Care Pharmacist Podcast. This is your host Donna Bartlett. Today we have with us the guest editor of the January 2023 Senior Care Pharmacist publication, Dr. Noel Campbell. Welcome, Dr. Campbell. So glad you're with us today. So glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. So Dr. Campbell is an Associate Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Purdue University, and he also has an appointment with Indiana University Center for Aging Research. He's written the guest editorial, Building Demand for Deprescribing Expertise, Pharmacists as Deprescribing Care Coordinators in the 2023 publication of the Senior Care Pharmacist. So I just love this title just right off the bat. So thank you so much for writing this, Noel. I think we're speaking the same language here. And there's so many pharmacists out there who really do want to become part of the movement for deprescribing too. So I'd love to hear more about you and your journey to geriatrics and now to deprescribing. Great. Before I jump into that, I do want to comment at least on the title. And for those who may not spend much time publishing, those in the audience at least who may not spend time publishing, there's there's some intention that goes into the art of creating the title. And part of the purpose is to be catchy and, and to represent your work that's contained within the publication, but also to attract attention. I just want to, there were probably five, six, seven, eight versions of the title that attempted to be concise, but yet trigger, identify attention, trigger attention, um, but also be a little bit leading. So uh, I'm excited about the publication, the opportunity to write it as well. But I'll go into, I'll respond to your question about my journey in geriatrics and prescribing. You know, interestingly, when I, when I left pharmacy school, uh, successfully left pharmacy school, <laughs> sometimes you say it, it sounds like I just left. When I left, uh, matriculated from pharmacy school, um, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And I had a couple directions in mind, but I pursued residency training. And one of the experiences in residency training was working with older adults in, in just in the first three months of my first residency. Mm-hmm. And I was working with older adults and I had also worked with younger adults, pediatrics. And mm-hmm. I learned within, within a few days, that wasn't for me, but in my, my fortunate opportunity to work with older adults, I understood pretty quickly that my gut was telling me too that there's opportunity here because I'm really interested in medicines and how they work. And here's a population who uses a lot of them. And guess what? They have a lot of questions and they're not really sure about things. And I found a lot of value in that point in my career, just helping them understand what does this do? How does it work? What can I expect? So I really value those interactions, but also of equal importance. I really appreciated the people that I was working with from the healthcare side, from the healthcare industry side. And they were so caring, empathetic, and fun to work with. That, that was the pull. My gut was telling me this is where you should go. And so I was fortunate to be able to pursue, to, to follow on that first kind of general inpatient hospital residency program with, with a fantastic experience in a second PGY2 residency at the University of North Carolina with Mary Roth. And it was fantastic. I learned a ton in that that kind of directed my or focused my career towards geriatric. As it relates to deprescribing, though, mm-hmm. interestingly, we we all know, the audience here knows very well that 
you can't unpack geriatrics from polypharmacy. Mm-hmm. And so we spend a lot of time there. But shortly into my professional career, we started working on deprescribing topics. But the deprescribing term hadn't really been really, I don't know that it had even been published yet. But it, had, it didn't have mainstream attention, didn't attract mainstream attention. So we started working on studies to reduce risk of high-risk medicines, mm-hmm. or risky medicines in older adults, roughly around 2008, 2009. And we later called them deprescribing trials, but at the time we weren't calling them deprescribing trials. Right. When, when the, the snowballing of this work around the term deprescribing started, we kind of reflected and said, guess what? We've been doing this for a while. Mm. And that was really fascinating to kind of stumble into. Like, guess what? We've been doing this, uh, but we haven't been calling it. But we're a part of this group mm. and we need to harness that. So that was fun. I'll have to admit, though, our early work <laughs> was riddled with failures in that we didn't we didn't deprescribe well. But the work that we were doing and the lessons we were learning were yeah. it was deprescribing work, which intends to reduce the harms of medicines while kind of optimizing the benefits and it fit. Yeah. And so, so that's kind of my, my longer answer, if you will, my rambling answer into no, that's great. my four way into uh, geriatrics <laughs> and deep prescribing. I think it's an avenue that many of us have taken and it wasn't necessarily our intent originally, but we find ourselves here and we're excited that we're here and excited to help people. Right. I often right. say to folks that, oh, you know, the medicines have worked. You're living to older ages now. And so the medicines have done their job, but your body's changed. And and we need to start thinking about your medicines a little differently. So Agreed. I think it is, you know, having to get that more mainstream out there, like you're saying. Here's another here's another perspective, too, that, that I think was influential in, in getting to where I am now was just following the things that you find interesting, mm-hmm. putting yourself in positions to do that. But then ultimately just when opportunities arise, say yes. Those can get you in places that you enjoy then get you into some places that you find you end up not liking, but the lesson you learn is how you get out of them. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> For sure. Uh, so The guest editorial that you wrote brings to light many pathways and barriers to deprescribing. Like you said, at the beginning, probably wasn't so pretty necessarily or, you know, wasn't coined deprescribing or maybe not the exact pathway. But I was reading through this information. You've mentioned a couple of issues that I think we all experience, especially those of us who are really heavily into exploring deprescribing and working with older adults. And that is where there's some missed opportunities. And, you know, we think that really now every encounter should possibly have some deprescribing or the conversation of, you know, is it appropriate at this time? And I kind of get saddened, if you will, a little bit myself that there are missed deprescribing opportunities. And then there's another note that you mentioned in there that in some of the studies that pharmacist recommendations aren't accepted widely and that there seems to be a pretty low percentage in some studies. Other studies, they tend to have a higher percentage. But I just want to hear a little bit more about these missed opportunities that you have spoken about a little bit and where you see that moving. Yeah, I really think that missed opportunities is 
is the right way to talk about it because as opposed to calling them positive or negative interactions, mm -hmm. right? we, and we don't want to make a mistake here and say that we are bad or they are bad mm -hmm. um, and they can be multiple people in this conversation, mm -hmm. but it, these aren't good or bad outcomes. They are, they're just what they are. Mm -hmm. The poor uptake or missed opportunities from recommendations to be prescribed is what it is. This audience, I think, knows that recommendations are made based on information available at the time. Mm -hmm. And we can also appreciate that sometimes we don't, when we're making recommendations, we may not have all the information. And, you know, because the healthcare system exists in so many silos, that there may be additional information that, that limits the uptake of deprescribing. But again, our experience in kind of failing to deprescribe in our early clinical trials, trying to work through, trying to build deprescribing into the EMR, really mm -hmm. stems from the fact that we we're trying to do that before we had a much more robust understanding of the deprescribing process. And we know from a lot of work that's been done, you know, Emily Reeve has been leading a lot of this work, but from a lot of that work that's been done in the last roughly 10 years, has described why why does it fail? Why does it happen in routine clinical care? Why does it happen so infrequently? And that's because it's complex. And we didn't have that understanding at the time. So it's it's set out to fail unless we construct the system in a way that supports it and encourages it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I think like in this audience, you know, many of the listeners here, like being pharmacists, understand I make recommendations and they don't get accepted. And that can be frustrating. It's, I can appreciate that it's frustrating, but I can also appreciate that there could be, like I said before, there could be additional information that we're not privy to when making those recommendations that could change mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the priority of that recommendation. There could be acute issues that are ongoing that could explain the poor uptake. Mm -hmm. But there are also ways I think that we can address that by making the deprescribing language, the deprescribing approach, the deprescribing experience more common, more mainstream, but also by increasing demand from a patient perspective, from a provider perspective, from a quality metrics perspective, all of those are increasing. Mm -hmm. And that's going to lead to, you know, an introduction of these introduction of these conversations at more frequent interactions with the healthcare system. But I'll go back to your original comment, which is rates of deep prescribing without any recommendations, without any stimulus, mm -hmm. hover around five to 10%, right? So in, that we can at least document. Yeah. So they're pretty low to begin with. Right. When we introduce like human-based interactions or even some EMR-based interactions or nudges, if you will, to deep prescribing, they increase modestly. Sure. But one of the challenges, and that's that's an improvement, right? It, mm -hmm. it assimilates to some of the work that's going on with advanced care planning discussions, which is let's go from 1% to 10%. That would be wildly fascinating. But really what we think is that the right number for people who should be having advanced care planning conversations should be 70% or 80%. But it's hard, right? It's complex. Mm -hmm. These are complex mm -hmm. interactions, and we're fighting a lot of stigma around this, these conversations and these activities. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things that we highlighted in the editorial is that there's actually quite a range of uptake of deprescribing 
deprescribing trials, if you will. I call them deprescribing mm-hmm. trials, not because they're clinical trials, but because they are attempts to deprescribe a medicine. And initiating that attempt to deprescribe a medicine can range from 20 to 25% up to 75 or 80%. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what we want to do is, what we're working on is not only understanding the process of deprescribing, what it takes, what kind of conversations you have to have, mm-hmm. who needs to be involved, who should be having those conversations, who needs to be aware that this is going on. We're learning more and more about the about that. What are the mm-hmm. provider's perspectives? What are the patient's perspectives? What are pharmacists' perspectives? And we're learning more and more about what does it take to deprescribe, who should do it, who should be involved, so that we can have more success in studying what it takes to not only execute deprescribing, but then also, and perhaps more importantly, what's the impact of deprescribing? What are the outcomes? Is it a good thing? Why is it a good thing? And that will help us kind of learn so much more about creating a system that supports it or doesn't if we find that it's not worth our time, right? So you've touched on a couple of things and I'd love to just build a little bit more on on a couple of them. And one is, you know, thinking about electronic based type of deprescribing and there's been some unsuccessful and ineffective type of deprescribing electronically, shall we say. And I've been asked about this too, you know, just like, why do we need this human touch? Why is it that pharmacists are so well based and, and what is the human approach that's truly needed? in order to be successful with deprescribing. And you just kind of touched on that a little bit, but I'd love for you to expand a little bit more on what some of the findings were and what some of the processes are that we're finding or, you know, that you're finding in your, in your research that is effective, that, that needs that human interaction that's going on. Right. Yeah. I, I'll first comment on, you know, the failures. Some of the first research that I, that I worked on in my career was was intending to improve clinical outcomes by changing medicines. And we found that we didn't improve clinical outcomes, but not because the medicines weren't affecting those, but because we couldn't deprescribe effectively. And we were trying to deprescribe through the EMR. And we learned through two clinical trials that at the time that a provider is writing an order for a high-risk medicine in the hospital environment, was too late to try to intervene. And we were unsuccessful at trying to intervene from that order, which we knew is a risky behavior. But showing them an alert that's not provided by a human or an interaction that's not provided by a human didn't change anything. So we were we were really disappointed that we couldn't either show that we couldn't test the clinical outcome that we were trying to improve. So we we're motivated by improving that clinical outcome. But we couldn't even test whether changing medicines could change that outcome because we couldn't change medicines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and we, we kind of learned through those two clinical, from the first clinical trial, we failed. And we heard from the providers that were receiving those alerts. They said, well, I don't, you know, we've got what in our system it was called at the time, it was called the F8 syndrome because F8 was the button you could use to exit out of interruptions. <laughs> they're busy, right? They've made the decision. They're busy that right now they're in the phase of trying to execute that decision that they've already made. That's not the time to interrupt. But what they told us was, all right, if you're going to interrupt me, 
or if I don't follow the recommendation, then give me a human to follow up. Give me a pharmacist. Have a pharmacist call me, page me, and explain to me what, what it is that they want me to do differently. And so we tried that. And to some extent, that worked because it shortened the duration to which people receive those medicines, but it still couldn't interrupt, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so they kind of clued us in after that first clinical trial. We tried that again in the second one, and we had a little bit of an impact, again, on the duration, but not as much on whether people received a medicine. This, again, is an acute environment, hospital environment. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's very time limited. But what they kind of told us was that I'll believe a person more than I'm going to believe an algorithm in a computer. Mm -hmm. And that kind of led us to, you know, after that second clinical trial, we're really still interested in really testing the impact of deep prescribing on clinical outcomes. But we're starting to learn, listen, it's, it's hard to do in the EMR. At least we aren't doing it the right way. And so we started to move towards these human-based interactions. Uh, and there's a big trust component that exists there. And uh, a big trust component that is emerging in deep prescribing literature that if I trust the person making my medication recommendations, then I might be more likely to follow them, whether it's to take a new one or to stop an existing one. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, I think that that's where that's leading us to, you know, our next phase of work, which was testing, testing these pharmacist based interactions, which are human based. They take time. They take multiple conversations. They take coordination. And that's one of the things that we highlight in this editorial is is kind of the title of the prescribing care coordinator because it does require the coordination of conversations, the education, and recommendations for how to take a medicine every day through these deep prescribing attempts. Some of the steps that are required for successful deep prescribing, and that's you know walking through just the beginning pieces of clarifying the indication uh, of the original medication, you know, education on the potential risks, making shared decisions, identifying appropriate alternatives if a medicine is desired, and then communicating that plan with everybody involved, the user of the medicine, the providers who might be prescribing or monitoring that medicine, but then also staying engaged through that deprescribing attempt in the monitoring and revising of that plan as needed. So that, that's multiple conversations, it's, it's care coordination, but it's my opinion, and we've, we've shown some early some success in this, mm -hmm. in, in getting high rates of, of initiating deep prescribing attempts yeah. that's um, great. by having a pharmacist control that process. So mm -hmm. we're kind of, kind of using the pharmacist who has a lot of medication knowledge, knows how to communicate with, with providers, knows how to communicate and educate patients. We're really a profession that's well positioned yeah. to take to take control of this. Yeah, I've been thinking of us as more like the catalyst between patients and providers. We really are like right in the middle to make it happen. So I agree with you on that. That we are well positioned for that for sure. So another idea that you had brought up before too was, you know, thinking about the studies too and going back and saying, oh, you know, let's measure improvement or because that's what we're used to, right? We're used to this evidence base and how was somebody improved. But with deprescribing, I often think that, you know, we we need to be proactive with it too. We don't want to wait for the fall before we actually remove a medicine or a fall that 
make somebody, you know, become hospitalized because of some type of fracture or break. Also, we know that as people age, their kidney function changes and it's easier and more profound to potentially have toxicities from medicines that aren't being eliminated appropriately, for example. So preferring not to wait for this to happen before we de-prescribe, kind of like you're saying, it's almost like too late, right? But people aren't necessarily going to feel that, oh, I didn't fall. But if we're removing medicines such as anticholinergics that might increase the risk of falls and reducing that burden, for example, people aren't necessarily noticing a change in the outcomes or can't report that right away. So do we look at no change as being a benefit? And do we have to almost rethink how we capture results for deep prescribing trials and think about improvement and also potentially no change is a good thing and it's a it's a positive outcome? Yeah, I would absolutely agree. The short answer is yes. We we do have to be comfortable with no change when successfully deprescribing, when no change is an outcome, understanding that that's not a bad thing. And in fact, it's that's a success. The long answer is that the, the healthcare system as it currently exists is pretty well equipped to deprescribe when that fall happens, when that bad outcome occurs, when that side effect occurs. We can recognize that and deprescribe then. That represents probably that 5 to 10% deprescribing rate that exists at baseline. So when we talk to providers, a lot of times, oh, I'm deprescribing. Yeah, I, I do that. But a lot of times that's catalyzed or, or, or cued by something bad is happening. And the field of deprescribing is really is really addressing that prevention perspective, right, that you're talking about. And it should continue as such. I think the other thing that we have to be careful about in deprescribing trials is understanding the timeline through which trials are being studied, right? So if I, and I've seen this, we have to design these studies with an appropriate follow-up timeline to make sure that we're capturing a change or a difference in the outcome when it's expected to occur. And, and, and I'll you know, maybe provide an example that stems from the things that we're interested in, which is aging brain research or cognitive research. Mm-hmm. It can take some time for the brain to change as a result of deprescribing. It can take some time for a clinical outcome to change as a result of deprescribing. So we really need to make sure that we aren't saying, congratulations, in this six-month study, I deprescribed, but at month nine, you know, I deprescribed PPIs in this population, but at month nine, my study outcome collection was over, and I patted myself on the back for deprescribing, but at month nine, GI bleed started to go up or some other bad outcome started to occur. So we have to be really careful and make sure that we are justifying the duration through which we say, no, there was no change in the clinical outcome, right? Mm-hmm. That's an important element to this discussion, but I'll go back and reiterate the point that we were talking about before is yes, a lot of the medicines that we're talking about being appropriate for deprescribing are medicines used for maybe symptoms or maybe not preventative care, right? So they're not antihypertensives in somebody who's hypertensive mm-hmm. and has a long life expectancy or, or a low cardi- really low cardiac risk. Mm-hmm. That's not always who we're talking about. We're talking about medicines used for a nagging symptom 
that turn out to be maybe not very effective or have efficacy, clinically significant benefit in one in three, which means you give three people the medicine, only one receives clinically significant benefit. Part of what deprescribing is, is finding that one and stopping it in the two so that they don't experience harm when not experiencing a benefit. And that's where I think that sweet spot is when we say, you know, there's no change in the clinical outcome. We're reducing harm, but we want to be very cautious when we're talking to our to our colleagues and our patients that we're also not we're not trying to compromise benefit, but we're intending to reduce harm. Mm-hmm. As I said before to you too, like I could just talk to you for a very long time about this whole topic. But just going back to your title and thinking about the forward thinking of pharmacy. How do we make the change? How do we do this? I've I've seen a lot in a lot of trials and a lot of studies that, you know, pharmacists are well poised for this and, you know, change needs to be made, but how do we how do we do it? How do we any suggestions? Yeah, anecdotally, I would say that I've gotten mixed feedback from pharmacists in this direction or we're comfortable with deprescribing. But at the same time, I think as we've trained pharmacists for our ongoing clinical trials, which are testing deprescribing interventions on clinical outcomes, we're comfortable with the concept, but some additional training is really helpful. Training in, you know, specifically in tapering schedules, cross-tapering schedules, finding alternatives, but also reminders or training in motivational interviewing, in best practices in communication, in communication and communication, and even best practices in kind of nudging or behavioral economics even where we identify like if we want to do this, the patient wants to do this, let's make it happen. So there, there is some support that could be needed for us to do this well, but we have the tools in place to do it. So how do we go about doing it? It's a great question. If, if I knew the answer, I'd be, I'd be doing it. But I think it has to stem from, I think it should stem from our profession's intent to help people through medicine and, and to want to do what's best for people and recognize that Sometimes stopping medicine means more mm-hmm. than giving medicine, mm-hmm. being comfortable with that, but, but starting with that core principle of, you know, I'm here to help, but I'm also recognizing that, you know, my profession is based on giving people medicine. Mm-hmm. So maybe reframing that thought to my profession is to help heal and to help people improve their health and well-being that can be through medicine, but sometimes it's not. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I think we're always thinking about treatment, but deprescribing is a form of treatment. And having that conversation uh, and thinking about that and sharing that with people, I, when I speak to older adults, I'll often say, what if you did go to the doctor and the doctor said, you know what, I want you to stop taking this medicine when you think you need something more? How does that sit with you? <laughs> How is that, is that okay with you in rethinking your expectations in our culture of going to the doctors and not feeling great and expecting something to make you feel better versus let's stop this. And what do you mean? I've been on that for years kind of scenarios going on. I think that there's a lot of, you know, reframing that needs to happen and in the conversation 
I always say is not just one conversation as you alluded to, too, Noel, is, you know, it's all this follow-up and monitoring and it's a constant that we have to start incorporating. Yeah, I, I do think we have to be aware of what healthcare is. We go to the doctor when we want a solution and doctors are great at diagnostics, problem identification and problem solving. And so the more that, that we go to a doctor wanting a solution, the more we're going to get one. Mm -hmm. That's okay, right? That's the way that the system works. We just have to be aware of it and then mm -hmm. we react to it. And I would say, you know, I've actually been having some thoughts recently as well that deep prescribing could be a catalyst and a platform for pharmacists. Mm -hmm. we've, we've had a lot of advancement. I think we'd all admit we've had a lot of advancement in the last 15, 20 years with prescribing capacity and prescribing capabilities. This could be a, you know, a really outstanding opportunity to leverage it, to leverage not only starting medicines, but stopping medicines and catapulting ourselves into that role of, hey, go see your doctor, go see your physician for diagnosis and setting out a treatment plan and overall care coordination. But go see your pharmacist. When you start a new medicine, go see your pharmacist to see if it's actually working. Mm -hmm. Go see your pharmacist to see if you need to keep taking it. Go see your pharmacist to see if there's something safer or better. If that one doesn't work, is there another one I could try? Mm -hmm. And I think we have an opportunity to, to leverage ourselves and our role in the healthcare delivery system for really being that medication management expert. I love it. And brings us right back to your editorial that you wrote and just really appreciate you sharing with us today on all of this wonderful information. One of my last questions I tend to ask is, what do you recommend, you know, moving forward? And I think you just answered that, especially for new practitioners or those that, you know, might want to make a change and, and do something a little bit different within the pharmacy field. And I, and I think you just answered that perfectly. Like, I, I love your ideas with that. And, and I also think that your editorial helps with that, even just as you had stated with the title when we started this conversation and thinking about the title and the many iterations that it went through. I love the pharmacists as de-prescribing care coordinators, and I think it speaks volumes. So thank you for that. Thank you for your thank attention you. to this. Yeah, thank you. The only thing that I would add is, is that act locally, think globally. For those of you out there who are doing, every, a lot of people listening to this are doing this. Share it locally and it will, it will make it global. That's great. Thank you so much. Just to share again, thanks so much to our great guest today, Dr. Noel Campbell. He is the guest editor of the January 2023 Senior Care Pharmacist publication. And he wrote a wonderful guest editorial called Building Demand for Deprescribing Expertise, Pharmacists as Deprescribing Care Coordinators. Really appreciate your time with us today, Dr. Campbell. And I just want to say thank you to all of our listeners, too. We love that you are tuned in, that hopefully you continue to learn more about senior care. And we appreciate all that you do to help seniors be well and upright and vital in our communities. So thank you so much to our listeners. And thank you again, Dr. Campbell. Thank you, Donna. This is okay. fantastic. Great. All right. You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ASCP.com slash podcasts. ASCP, empowering pharmacists 
Transforming Aging.